Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's event. I'm delighted to have the chance today to talk with Pippa Grange about her book, Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself, in which Pippa shows us how, by starting to live with less fear, we can find deeper fulfilment. And if we're honest with ourselves, there have been moments for us all where fear has held us back. I don't mean the odds of the phobia, but what Dr. Grange describes as not good enough fear. It holds back communities, institutions, maybe society as well. And given the scale of the challenges we individually and collectively face, we can't afford to be held back. Now, Dr. Grange is a sports psychologist and a culture coach working across elite sports and business internationally. She's worked with some of the biggest names in sport and business. Um, as head of people and team development at the Football Association, she worked closely with the England team for the World Cup in 2018. Uh, Pippa is now part of the senior leadership for the Global Right to Dream group, uh, working on cultural strategy. Thank you for joining us, Pippa, and I'm very excited to dive into this fascinating book. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. That's an absolute pleasure. Now, I mean, let's just start at the top and, you know, very, very broad. Um, and obviously your book goes into some depth on these questions. But, you know, what is fear? Uh, and what's the impact of fear, of fear on our lives? What does fear state do to motivation and performance? And what triggers it? Hmm. So we'll start right at the top. <laughs> yes. um, for, for me, uh, fear, I describe fear as an emotional energy. Um, it, is, it is a very natural phenomena, a very natural response phenomena um, to, that is triggered when we feel threat of some kind um, and threat in its broadest sense that we'll, I'm sure we'll go into it a little bit in the conversation um, what it what it does to us is um, basically, you know, we can, we can look at this from a number of angles, but, you know, I think that the main thing that I talk about is that it steals our joy, keeps us small and um, puts us in a place where we're much less willing to take risks than we might otherwise be. Um, and it's risks that are risks of some kind that are um, the juice of life. And I, I feel that we quite often don't recognize how hijacked we are by uh, not good enough fear. It shows up in sneaky ways and disguises itself as other things that we might not recognize so readily. Um, and I think that we, uh, the, the, the great objective here is to actually learn how to turn the volume down on the amount of not good enough fear that's, that's sort of coursing through life and feel like we have a few more options of how we might like to experience our uh, successes and failures without that sort of shaking fear in the background. It's an emotion I'm sure we all we all know well. And you know, obviously, you know, the, the timing is an interesting one because here we are, um, well, almost a year and a half into a pandemic, mm. and obviously there's been quite a bit of fear about. And I was I was reading your your um, you know, your, your, your book, which I think there's just, there's abundantly fascinating sort of insights into our, into our psychological makeup, stories about ourselves and others that, 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 that come together and really open out the, the, the topic very well. But there was something nagging at the back of my mind as I was reading it, that actually fear may have had its uses in the past 
um, 18 months or so mm. in the context of, uh, of, 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 of a pandemic. And I was thinking of an own, my own personal um, experience where you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was due to go to a wedding and I felt a degree of sort of um, loyalty to go to the wedding. And I felt a feeling of shame that I hadn't have gone, but it was actually fear that prevented me from going as the first lockdown was happening in case I was the cause of somebody else catching, I was living in London mm-hmm. at the time and someone else catching COVID. So you can see that fear actually in certain circumstances has its uses. Is it always a negative thing? Or even as you know, a societal level, can it sometimes be a positive? Absolutely. You, you raise such an excellent point here. You know, the, um, I, I wrote the book actually just before the pandemic. Um, I I couldn't have foreseen what was coming and I wish I'd had the opportunity to sort of include some thoughts on that. But um, something that I do talk about is that fear, we don't want to be without fear. The book is called Fearless, not Fearless. Mm -hmm. Fear is very useful, very natural and very useful. And I make the distinction between two types of fear. Um, One is in the moment fear and one is not good enough fear. In the moment, fear is where something is actually threatening you. Something is actually, you know, in front of you. You're facing down a choice of something around something where it does involve um, risk and a threat of some kind. And the example you describe of trying to make a difficult choice between, you know, the, your your value of loyalty and the value of of not causing harm or or um, putting other people at risk is is a perfect example of something that would stir up in the moment fear and be very real. So it can look like that, or it can look like a sort of immediate fear response, you know, as you drive around a corner too fast and and, um, reach for the brake quickly and you get a a prickle of fear. That's also in the moment fear. And both are utterly rational and utterly necessary. We do need them at a personal level, and and I believe at a cultural level, they guide, they motivate. Um, The problem is that they can be way too amplified. And if we're not noticing what kind of fear space we're in, um, it can take over quite readily. It's quite quite contagious. Yeah, and and I guess that, that, that sort of in the moment fear, as you describe it, yeah, has its uses, but they can quite clearly t- turn in on us, you know, as, and, and again, just because we're in, we're in the moment of the, of the pandemic. And, and, you know, hopefully we, we, we emerge out of it. We've now got the, 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 the spread of vaccines and, you know, there is some hope about, about the future, no matter what the short-term context might, 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 might be. But I wonder at some point, for many, whether that fear has become debilitating. We haven't yet sort of reckoned with what the changes have been to our sort of psychological makeup as a result of this past um, 18 months and what might have been a very healthy fear to begin with might actually for many have become debilitating in ways we don't quite yet recognise. Yeah, I I really agree with that on a couple of levels. Firstly, in terms of sort of, you know, anxieties born of um, the the length of time we've had to be very vigilant about something that's actually really threatening, um, Mm. you know, genuinely causing us angst um, and, and it's been habitu- we've had to habituate our behavior around it you know whether that's the vigilance of, of sort of you know precautions like hand washing or wearing masks uh, the vigilance of staying apart from people and, and you know habits form relatively quickly 
So I think that there's some undoing and unlearning of those habits that we'll need to um, contemplate as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully. But the other thing I notice um, in terms of the amount of time that this has been going on, and I, I mentioned before that fear often disguises itself or it's, it's um, expressed as something that's, that we, we find um, more, we can deal with more readily. And anger is one of those things. Yeah. So Martha Nussbaum, Nussbaum um, the philosopher, actually uh, used a brilliant expression she called anger, the child of fear. And, um, mm. and I think that we, we are seeing lots of anger and blame and um, the, the sort of need to land that emotion somewhere um, mm. as sort of, you know, uh, a, a very strong sort of sense of other people being wrong or you being right um, and, you know, a strong sort of sense of communal anger. And I think that the root of that is a lot of the fear that we're talking about that's built up. And we haven't quite known what to do with it. I love that child of fear quote. Mm. It really touches on something, doesn't it? And I think we'll, we, we might come back to some of the, the how it relates to politics and, and fear a bit later on in our, in our conversation. And one, one of the things that you, you talk about in your book is around this sort of concept of sort of a, having a sort of scarcity mentality. There isn't enough to go around. Mm. Opportunity, resource, success, love, happiness. And, and that can breed a sort of, you know, a, a will to dominate or a sense of, of competition where, where it's not necessary to have that. What do you think this sort of mentality does to our, our, our relationships, whether they're professional or personal or otherwise? I, I really think that they drain our relationships. Relationships need psychological space. All kinds of relationships need psychological space and presence. And fear, um, the scarcity mentality that's associated with fear, takes us in the opposite direction. Things mm. become urgent. Things become, we, we feel the need to conclude or to make certain or to control. They're all associated with this idea of there not being enough to go around, whether it's, you know, uh, professional success or um, or whether it's something sort of, you know, broader than that as we think of, of love or, um, you know, community uh, space within communities, community connections. When we're, when we're, um, when we allow ourselves to absolutely uh, work and live at full throttle and be in a constant race, um, constant performative race, uh, scarcity is bred very quickly. You know, the, the idea of climbing the ladder, the idea of, um, needing to uh, reach the top. Um, it's, it's scarcity is at the root of each of those things. Um, the idea that you'll, you'll run out of time before you've done it all. Um, and, and I personally think that that destroys our psychological freedom, our mental freedom, um, and the ability to really deeply find contentment or to enjoy the successes that we do have in life. It's not that I don't appreciate goals and the... Um, the um, benefit of the motivation of goals and having, you know, dreams and, and uh, ambitions, so to speak. But I think that when they go along with um, a feeling of scarcity, now or never, it's this window of opportunity or it's all over. I think that they really take us away from, from um, the full experience and they take us away from performance actually too. 
Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, your background, well, part, part of your background is in sports psychology. Did you do you ever have a sort of ambivalence about sport as a as a wider metaphor? Because of course, the I'm probably completely misunderstanding you, but the thing about sport is, it, you know, the, the the rewards are quite scarce. You either you either win the medal or you don't. You win the race or you don't. You win the league um, or you don't. It has a very clear sort of structure and and form it's why it makes such great metaphors because mm. it's very applicable to to you know wider wider challenges and wider life do, do you ever have ambivalence about about what we can learn from sport and and translate into our in, into our wider perspectives on life i really love that question um i have many ambivalent days but <clears throat> what i what i've um what i've come to understand about sport is that um it, it, what we see as sport now often is is much more something much more like a commoditized event, <laughs> mm-hmm. and what sport actually is 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 an expression of our humanness. Mm-hmm. You know, the playing of sport is an expression of our deep um, ability to compete or to endure or to um, test our metal in some way. Um, whether that's, you know, against self, against the clock or against each other. Um, and there's something beautiful in that. And I sometimes find when we talk about sport now, we talk about the professional edifice of it, um, you know, as this sort of product or commodity. Um, and for me, when I have those ambivalent days, I go back to my understanding of what it actually is and does. Um, and, and when I think of it from that perspective, you know, I still I still love it. I still find the joy in it and, and the point of it and the worth in it for us as, as a, a human species. The sense of belonging and, and community, which, of course, is so, so, so rich right. um, and is one of the few ways in which we can all mainly come together. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that's actually not inevitable. There, there are many times where sports actually not inclusive or um, it you know, for all our, our glossy view of it, um, creating belonging, that's not inevitable. We actually have to choose that as a way of doing sport and being in sport and allowing sport. Sometimes sport's a volatile environment for negativity, you know. And, and so, you know, I, I think it's really important that we choose how we approach sport and what we allow in sport and what we want from it. It's um, It can be equally a negative, exclusive environment as it can be something character building and, and amazing. We we have to uh, choose the process ourselves. And of course, there has been a, you know a controversy running around players taking the knee um, mm-hmm. in, in in protest at um, structural racism. And um, I, I, one of the things I, I read recently that really sort of um, impacted me, I thought was a brilliant piece of writing was actually by England manager Gareth Southgate, um, who, who, who wrote in response to the criticism the England team were getting for taking the knee. Um, and I've got, I've got a quote here. It says, I, I have responsibility to the wider community to use my voice. And so do the players. It's their duty to continue to interact with the public on matters such as equality, inclusivity and racial injustice while using the power of their voices to help put debates on the table, raise awareness um, and educate. There was something quite amazing that mm-hmm. was happening mm. um, in that articulation because what, what Southgate 
seemed to manage to do to me was to uh, articulate a version of of, of patriotism that that was that, that that was quite demanding actually and was insistent that actually it is that it isn't there isn't a world called sport and sportsmen have to play over there we're all part of a of a national community right. and we all have political voice and actually if we have a position and a role we almost have a duty um to 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 highlight issues of of of, of deep um, concern. So what was interesting in the context of fear, I think, and it must have been quite a beautiful moment, I think, maybe for, for Southgate or some around him, maybe it wasn't for Southgate, but it, what, what it seems that he's doing, he was confronting fear in a, in, in, in a, very, um, in a very assertive way, mm-hmm. but a very articulate way that I think opened out a different sort of space for, for, for this debate. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. It was a, um, a a clear and articulate expression of um, how he sees his responsibility. And I, I think that, you know, the viewpoint there that I would share is that sport belongs to the fans, to the people. Um, it's it's not something separate. And as, you know, to my point before about it, um, it being possible for it to be a the best expression of our humanity like the arts in fact it's you know it is something then that we have to treat um, with care and take responsibility for so you don't get to sit in this separate bubble um, with a separate set of rules um, and you definitely don't get if you're a fan or um, you know it's an observer of the game you definitely don't get to assume a right that the people who play and the people who are involved in it um, are some kind of um, commodity, some kind of uh, entertainment avatar that that don't have uh, the right to civil opinion. They absolutely do. Um, Even if you didn't look at it from a a perspective of duty or responsibility, which I'm pretty sure Gareth would, um, you you, you can look at it in terms of, well, well, that's actually every player's workplace and they have just as much right to to any kind of civil comment, uh, and especially on something as injurious as racism, um, to which they have been subject many times. So, you know, I, I feel very strongly that they we don't carve them out in some way as separate to the rest of the rules of society. It's been fascinating the past year year or so that seeing some of the most um, uh, interesting public leaders stepping up in a moment of national crisis have actually been some of the the players in the round yeah. that england team some of the clubs you know, marcus rashford is the obviously one obviously one that that, that 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 springs to mind and there seems to be a, a generation of young um uh sports people coming through and you see it not, not just in in the male version of the game you see it in 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 women's football we've seen examples in tennis and and tennis stars you know, mm. demanding that they are treated with a greater degree of respect. But it seems to be a generation of sports people um, uh, coming through that seem to be em- em- embracing this wider public um, persona. And it must be a difficult thing to be the first one to do that. And I, you think about in the past and some of the things that, that that some sports people experienced in the past, homophobia, racism and so on, and didn't have a voice in that, in that process. There's something very powerful going on in, in confronting fear, but then opening out wider public engagement as a, as a result. Mm. I, th- I think that's probably true of young people generally. Um, you know, there's a, a, sh- a cultural shift um, towards sort of 
uh, a more realistic and a less fear-driven culture that they're prepared that they want to create for the future and that they're prepared to live in and that's wonderful you know that that sort of especially in sport that sort of hyper muscular um tough it out take mm. it on the chin sort of mentality it just doesn't wear anymore it's it's not it, it not it is not now and, and never really was um a sound culture and um, I'm really happy to see that start to change. And I think that that groundswell um, is coming from the top as well as uh, as well as sort of, you know, the public um, and sort of bottom up. I just noticed before um, before our conversation today that um, there was uh, a bid by the by the German um, football association and football team to actually be able to light up their stadium um, at the next game with the rainbow flag um, as they play Hungary in protest to the anti-homosexual um, laws being passed by Hungary. So, you know, um, when you see something like that, you can see the power of sport and yeah. you can see the power of, of that sort of different rhetoric, that different tone that's coming mostly from young people speaking up without fear and just just speaking truth as they see it. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Is um, Personally, I, the reason I still feel hopeful every day is that I think that there's a lot of thirst for that change. There is, not, not quite um, within UEFA, it would have uh, been, uh, <laughs> apparently have tried to, tried, to, tried to block it, but yeah. you don't have to express the opinion of that, that's, that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> but you know, if, you want a, if you want an institution that is woefully out of date, then, you know, yeah, but might not be a bad place to start. But don't. But when you look at that, don't you don't you think that there it's becoming abundantly clear where those woefully out of date um, institutions are? Yes. You know, because yeah. that public conversation is getting um, uh, stronger with more voices and more voices of authority figures or, or respected, credible figures, as you mentioned, even Gareth. You know that it, on racism. The people who are not keeping up institutionally or otherwise are becoming really apparent um, and not cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no, abs, 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 absolutely, absolutely not. Now, um, in your book, you, you talk a lot about sort of winning shallow and, and winning deep. So, do you want to mm-hmm. talk us through those ideas a little in a little more detail? Yeah, um, I make the distinction because after sort of you know, 25 years in the field working with sort of um, very high performers who were, you know, by any of our reckoning, uh, extremely successful. I noticed time and time again that there was a, um, a, a, I just use the word tone, that went with a lot of high performers that they, they couldn't really feel or experience their success and their wins in any in any deep way as soon as the trophy was in their hands or the <clears throat> the deal was signed or you know whatever kind of um, performer we're talking about they were on to the next thing they never actually felt any fulfillment or any sense of being enough um and you know the, the uh, term i coined for that was that they were they were chasing shallow winds you know yeah. it was it never actually felt like it it hit deeply it was never bone deep in contentment um, and I think that those kind of wins usually come where we're um, we're chasing something only for self, only uh, that's about personal gain. Yeah. Um, 
where it is a, a do or die mentality, a scarcity mentality, as we spoke about before, um, and where there is <clears throat> sort of a deep sense of urgency um, that's, that's associated with it. So again, back to our sort of eternal, eternal foot race to the top. Um, those wins, in my experience, working across many uh, elite athletes and, and business performers from sort of boardroom to, to boot room, mm. um, was that, that they, they don't feel good. They feel shallow and empty and, and vapid. And, and then there's the alternative, which is the deep wins, where usually there is something in that that is about more than you. It's a connected feeling. It's a, an experience of winning that comes from somewhere deep, you know, at a, a soul level, as I say, that's, um, that feels both earned with blood, sweat and tears but it feels like it has real meaning beyond just the trophy in your hands. So, um, you know, they're not as easily, uh, you don't come across those as, as readily as some of the shallow wins perhaps, because they require, it might be the same event or the same outcome that you're talking about, but they require a shift in perspective from us to really feel that you're working on something purposefully. What I found interesting in, 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 in the book is that, and I think it's because of the, 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 the sort of the, the, the winning frame, and I think you, you quote, I think it's Mark Epstein on sort of desire institutes, you, you use a lot of sort of terminology from, from the sports world, but then you, you turn it into something more soulful as you're, um, as, as, as you're describing, which is the, the winning and deep mentality. And I was sort of, again, I'm sort of wrestling with this sort of, an ambivalence for me of this sort of idea of the limitless self you can challenge yourself and relentlessly perform better and wider and deeper but knowing full well that it's it's our sort of limitless desires that are having all sorts of negative consequences not just for us as individuals for society and the environment we we we, we, we live in as well but equally not wanting to sort of sort of put ourselves in a position as humanity of not being able to achieve ever greater things as part of a more sort of a wider embracing communitarian um humanity that can that can reach out above and beyond and not just have those those, those shallow victories can you can you help me navigate this this mm. this, this sort of tension uh, uh, a, a, a little because i think you do it quite well toward towards the end of the book and then i then i got it um, and, and I think I think just a, a bit more of a sort of um, guidance as, as as to how we can prevent going to those sort of the, the, the sort of narrow victories into into a broader embrace of something which is which is worthwhile mm -hmm. and meaningful. Well, I I think that um, <clears throat> we navigate this on two levels. There's, there's the personal, you know, which is about really finding um, a sense of something that me that's meaningful for you. Um, and, and, you know, I say that, you know, without being trite, but quite a lot of us find ourselves on a, a performance treadmill with uh, lots of trappings of success, but we're not, we're not actually feeling very successful or very fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that requires some sort of um, fear inducing truth <laughs> about, <laughs> about what you're doing with your life and your, your precious time um, and who you're doing it with. And, and whether you're actually um, 
experiencing any sort of you know meaning in that and whether you're climbing the right ladder so to speak and you know that's that's a an individual journey and I talk in the book about some of the ways that that help you access that as well and Mm -hmm. you know really sort of coming back to the idea of what you desire um and and like understanding or unpicking what your dreams are without it sounding fluffy and and um you know uh esoteric or something we thought about when we were younger but we we park them as soon as we hit 30 sort of thing and it's you know that's i i think there's real richness in going back to your truth authentically and understanding where you are today vis-a-vis that that sort of truth and that requires sometimes a little trip to the underworld and to sort of, you know, have a look at, um, at what the reality of your life is and whether that feels successful to you rather yeah. than against the, um, the cultural grading system that we have around success. Um, because that's, that's a really interesting journey and a, not a very easy one for lots of people. But I think that that's really important. The other thing, though, is to recognize the, um, you know, the cultural zeitgeist that we're in around around success and winning and, and fear and what good enough looks like and, and how deep a hold perfectionism has on, mm. on um, the way that we live. Perfectionism, consumerism, how, how they actually shape the way that we think <clears throat> and the narratives that run us, the ideas that run us. And I think if we take the time to go a bit deeper on those then you know a lot of those narratives have fear have a a, a little dark spot of fear right in the middle of them a lot of those ideas Um, and you know they're the ones that we should stop and challenge and stop and ponder I'm not saying every single one is wrong but have we actually thought about the ideas and beliefs and narratives that run our life um, and where fear shows up in them. And when we can unpack a little bit of that, suddenly there's more space to make choices that feel more purposeful or stronger for you. And yeah. then they're not necessarily dramatic. Sometimes they're small shifts, but they're really, really fundamental, even if they're not huge. Well, you've done a lot of work um, with investing in opportunities for, for, for women and girls. And in terms of those sort of cultural expectations, of course, mm. expectations around um, uh, uh, appearance and how that can weigh down. We, we talk a lot about purpose. Of course, society can choose in a narrow way purpose um, for people, um, often uh, young women and girls, and the feeling that they, they have to look a certain way, be, be a certain way, and so on. How how be most of I mean it's difficult you know you're 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 alone and you're bombarded with um these cultural expectations through the commercial world media social media uh, most most particularly how can we start to change that that script do you think mm, I think I think lots of people are working on that and doing great work on that. But, you know, for me, it comes back to the idea of worth. Like the, the only reason that there's a distracting sort of set of ideas about um, women's, you know, how women or girls look is because we we have an idea that that's the center of their worth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we can, when we can, you know, move that to the side and actually come back to what a, a, a woman or a girl's inherent worth is, and she can understand that. Um, and she can bring that to the table with confidence, then I think that that's, you know, a, 
um, a huge step forward. A, a focus on the physicality. It's actually not just women anymore. I think that's very increasingly prevalent for men, but it's been a long history of that for women. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not that that's bad in and of itself, but it's distracting from worth. You know, that's, that's really got very little to do with a, an individual's um, value. Um, and that's the shift that we have to make so that people can understand that they're, um, you know, that they won't be rejected if there is some kind of less in that respect. Yeah. yeah. And it also, it also plays out on, on the sort of the stage of status as well, doesn't it? And, you know, we, we come with these sort of enormous, very impressive um, uh, brains to help us navigate the world in, in, in a variety of different ways, yeah. socially, cognitively, so on. Um, but they've got a lot of flaws to them. And if there's one bit of wiring, that, you know, fundamental wiring I could correct, it, it, it's kind of this inherent desire for, for sort of status mm -hmm. um, that, that I think leads to this, a lot of the sort of corrosive behaviours that you're, 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 you're describing and, and the will to, to, to dominate. Um, you know, how, how do we start to confront the sort of tyranny of status um, in, in, in our lives? Because, you know, it does, it does drive towards sort of fundamental exclusions. It does. And, and you know, I, uh, for me, my lens on that is a cultural one. And I think that we're obsessed with status because we fear um, rejection without status. You know, it, it, it is a fear at the heart of status, the need for status, the need for power. It's fear at the heart of it. And that's why I focus on fear as the topic rather than status or any of its manifestations. You know, at the end of the day, the less, the more we can have our hand on the volume around fear, the easier we're going to be able to navigate something like the need for status. So mm -hmm. it's, it's like the second, the secondary symptom, if you like, of, of the central issue, which is being too fearful. And, you know, for me, the, um, <laughs> the design flaw in this incredibly complex brain that we have is that we have maybe just a half second difference in the speed of processing between our old, what I call in the book, our old circuitry yes. that, that includes the amygdala and the newer circuitry of the prefrontal cortex that allows us to reason and, and you know, be rational and, and contemplate life. It's just a little bit slower <laughs> than the old <laughs> brain. And, and that causes immense amounts of, of complexity and, and difficulty for us because the old circuitry is much more interested in survival and power and being safe um, and preservation. And the new circuitry is, is much more interested in contemplating possibility, uh, contemplating the possibilities, but it's just that one step behind. That's a little bit of design <laughs> floor I would, I would fix if, if we could. Gotta get a new circuitry to catch up a bit, um, yeah. and of course, of course, you know, advertisers, marketers, on the road, they're all onto this and have been for <laughs> generations, right? Yeah. Um, but so are politicians, and yeah. uh, you know, you, I, I think in the book you referenced that the, the go home vans that were sort of that they were sort of sent out yeah. around North London, and of course, mm -hmm. obviously, what that's designed to do is sort of induce a sense of fear and a threat to status, mm -hmm. and to then mobilize that, that, that fear for, for, for political um, uh, gain um, mm -hmm. and you know, domination, to use, to use that, 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 that phrase. Um, and 
yeah, it's 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 problematic because it's 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 not just around sort of uh, winning power or not. It starts to structure the very way we think about our world, the type of policies that we're willing to accept, the type of things yep. that we are willing to think as reasonable, mm-hmm. and can and in the worst circumstances can can take us into ever more extreme positions. And um, how can we start to confront that? You know that the. the thing I talk about throughout the book is it starts with seeing the fear, right? So um, for both the reasons that you, you just outlined in terms of how culturally manipulated uh, fear is, um, but also because of the design flaw that we just mentioned, um, we do actually need to pause just a second, half a second actually, and notice to just see um, when when fear is there, um, you know, and, and what I talk about is seeing it and then facing it before you try and do something about it. And, you know, if there were one thing I could encourage people to do, it's just hold their ground for that tiny little second longer to notice what the emotional experience they're just having is, um, because so often it's actually fear rather than, as we said, anger or frustration or irritation at somebody else or disgust or all all sorts of other things that then manifest in a a whole set of ideas and narratives that that shape our life it's so often just that little extra moment to recognize it's fear that is there fear is in the room and then face how is this showing up in my life so you know what is this costing me what is the cost of this idea Um, And whether that's individually in a marriage, for example, or in a relationship between a father and son or, you know, in a work relationship or if it's a cultural, institutional, political position that we're talking about, it's the same stuff. What actually is present when we react that way? And we just need to just hold that tiny bit longer, which, you know, that's the courage in the work. But it's also just about knowing that that's going on constantly, that we're constantly tripped into this recycling of that strong, powerful emotion of fear. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And it's interesting you reference the, the workplace in, 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 in the conversation here as well, because, of course, you know, fear-based environments, and it can be very subtle. I mean, we, we, we don't necessarily talk about, um, not necessarily talk about, you know, a, a sort of sweatshop culture or, you know, the, 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 the high octane culture of um, uh, sort of um, ultra alpha male environments in, in 1980s sort of financial institutions, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but a, a, a per, what seems like a perfectly reasonable with, um, work, work, workplace um, and well-meaning can often harbour a lot of fear um, in many, in many respects. And in, in order to confront that, um, uh, you know, it, it, it might be necessary to display something which I think you discuss at points in the book around the vulnerability. Mm. Um, but the problem with that, and, and I think this applies whether, no matter what your seniority in the organisation is, it's a big, big risk if you're new in an organisation, for example, and you don't want to seem that you're not competent or you're weak in, um, in some way, you fear 
that you might be exploited if you show vulnerability, but it actually applies at the other end of organizations uh, as well. Even those with um, power may not be able to communicate what is concerning them or you know, why they're acting in, in, in certain ways um, or even to open out a conversation around how they're acting in certain circumstances for fear that their vulnerability could be used against them how can organizations and the organizations you you work with may, may have confronted some of this start to cherish vulnerability and um, but then also expect that a response of vulnerability is is other people reaching out and supporting and seeking to understand and respond in an appropriate way rather rather than try to push it away um, in some way or even worse crush it mm. I totally agree that the other end of the spectrum of like those with the most power, those who seem like they actually have it all together are equally uh, strained when it comes to showing vulnerability, you know, and there, there are a couple of things that I think are really important in the unlocking of this. And one of those is intimacy. You know, I feel like this this term intimacy has been sort of co-opted far too much as something that just is part of families or between happens between partners. You know, we think of intimacy in very narrow ways, but actually intimacy is just about, you know, being able to show up as you authentically, you know, mask off, guard down and uh, perform from there respond interact relate from there and the fact that it feels terrifying tells us everything we need to know about the kind of culture that we're we're living in and and have created but you know vulnerability can also be contagious Um, and when we can um, show up intimately uh, and just not not filter quite so much not not put ourselves in that strained position of worrying constantly about the impression we're making on the other and whether we look good enough, which is at the heart of all of this, you know, things free up in tremendous ways that generally elevate performance massively. Um, and that feel so much better because you're, you're actually in a relationship rather than a performance dance, yeah. you know, and, and that's so central. And I think organizations can go so far with this. I, I give an example in, the book of a, an Australian rules football team called Richmond Tigers who did a, um, a Triple H exercise where wanted to introduce more intimacy and they, they um, each player, each staff member, but each player starting with sort of the captain had to stand up in front of 45 other guys and tell a story of a hardship, a highlight and a hero from their life. Now, these are guys who go out and crash into each other and, you know, they they couldn't be more tough in the traditional sense. But they were absolutely terrified about doing this because it was intimate because and and nobody had given them parameters on what the kind of stories they brought. But that it was they were they um, to a person brought vulnerable stories. They brought intimate stories about family and about history and about experiences and the sharing of just stories of who they were as humans um, and the commonality of that created such an extraordinary relational bond um, and sense of knowing each other beyond the mask that their performance you know that was one of the catalysts for their performance lifting tremendously and it doesn't have to be Triple H and sort of a, a scenario where you stand in front of your colleagues and, 
and talk about you know heroes hardships and highlights but but the idea of you know how could you show up at work tomorrow and give more of your uh story give more of yourself you know and and when somebody says how are you doing and you say I'm good thanks and move on or yeah yeah good weekend so it was nice to get the sun out and and set something superficial what if you made eye contact what mm-hmm. if you stayed five seconds longer and actually related to the person in front of you and the conversation that you were having that's what I mean by intimacy it's actually very small small acts of relating can absolutely break open performance in organizations or teams you know, on or off the pitch. And I think we underrate it massively. It's an unlock to vulnerability. It's a a partner to vulnerability. And that for me is just, it's got reams of possibility in terms of performance, but also fulfillment. I think you're going to have to vote a lot of hardship here and highlight conversations in many companies uh, across (laughs) the country, if not beyond, um, following this conversation. So, how big does this does this get? You know, you 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 talk a lot about sort of um, writing new stories, telling new stories, that to see and face the fear as you described it um, earlier uh, earlier on. You know, what does this open up? Not just for us as individuals, but for us as, as a society. You know, could it open up wider and more accelerated change as we, for example, confront inequality or climate emergency? You know, is, is fear at a sort of societal level holding us back, preventing us from making some of the big changes that we need to make? And I was one of the stories I was struck by in the book was the example of uh, Amin Nima, and apologies mm-hmm. if I mispronounced mm-hmm. that, but they, they, they which is a, a community, well, a neighbourhood in, in in Ghana where mm-hmm. uh, a footballer basically unlocked the community's sort of capabilities and assets by highlighting not on their impoverishment but on what their their capabilities were in, and and they did this through sport and music and art, mm-hmm. and it restored sort of a sense of uh, confidence and mobility and energy to the the community. Now, obviously, that's at a relatively small scale. But can we use this this way of approaching things to harness much bigger change, the type of change that we need? Yes, um, but I think that the Amanima example and King Jan is the um, one of the uh, founders of that project. You know mm. that the the example there um, is perfect because it's it's a small start in a local sense that escalates. So you know when when somebody feels moved. Um, by that shift, that sort of um, lowering of the fear and elevating of, of the, the possibility or, or the sort of renewed sense of themselves, um, that, that is equally contagious. That spreads, right? So, you know, I think sometimes we stand back with arms crossed and frustration at, at who's going to fix things, who's going to make these enormous sort of um, social changes that we absolutely need to make and that we're facing into. And, you know, my invitation would be for people to start much closer to home in the ability to relate to your fellow man in a, 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 um, a re sense of what it is to be human. When we say common humanity, what's common? <laughs> how do you know if we don't relate? You know, how do we actually know each other? I think that so much is vested in relationships in terms of how we do from here. 
you know, as a society. And when we relate, we care. Um, when we care, we'll make change. And so, you know, coming back to that, turning down the fear and opening up enough to create relations, cre create relationships for me is, is you know, has a, um, uh, an abundant power in it to do amazing things. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of no longer waiting <laughs> for somebody else to, to sort things out brilliant if they can but i think you know psychologically there's much stronger work we can do close to home that is, is very very powerful when we relate we care when we care we can make change what a brilliant note to unfortunately finish our conversation on because because <laughs> we're out of time i guess that the, the sentiment is that we are the people we've been waiting for but it is about we and us. Yeah, exactly exactly right yeah brilliant well look Thanks so much um, for um, joining us this, this afternoon. You'll, you'll find links to Pippa's book, Fear Less, not Fearless, but Fear Less, um, uh, in the chat here and on the RSA website. And if you enjoyed this discussion, you might want to check out some other um, RSA uh, videos in, in, in this arena. For example, Brené Brown's illuminating talk on, on, on empathy. Um, thank you again, Pippa, for joining us. And, and thank you all for watching um, and we'll see you all soon. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to be with you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.